we want to turn our attention to Scripture. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're going to read verses 28 <clears throat> through 36. This is an account of the transfiguration where Christ is transfigured. You see some of His glory that's His all along. So listen here to God's Word. Some eight days after these sayings, Jesus took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, or his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any, any of the things which they had seen. Amen. Our epistle reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. We memorized this a few years ago. In fact, we memorized through chapter 2, verse 10. But uh, it's a good uh, prayer. It's good instruction about... Uh, how we can pray for others. So listen here to God's Word. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Amen. And our primary text today is our text from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> this is uh, part of that interlude between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. We read the first part of that interlude last week with chapter 10. We read the other part of it this morning in chapter 11, the first 14 verses. Listen here to God's Word. John is speaking, John the Apostle. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out or cast out 
the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon all those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Gracious God, we thank you that you are gracious, that you're good to us. We're gathered here as your people to worship you, to honor you, and Lord, also to be fed by you. So come, minister among us by your word and by your spirit. Thank you that we can sing your praise and you meet with us. You can read your word and you meet with us. We pray, Lord God, now that in the preaching of your word, you meet with us. Help us, Lord, to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 11 is considered to be one of the toughest chapters of the entire Bible to understand. I agree. (laughs) Just in case you're wondering, I agree. I think it is. Uh, I think one thing will help us, though. It immediately follows chapter 10, and it's linked to chapter 10. Uh, You know, there were no chapter and verse designations in the original text. It was just one long flowing text. No chapters, no verses. Uh, It's not till the 16th century that we get chapters and verses, actually. Now, chapter 10 ends with John eating the little book. Go ahead and we'll put it up here uh, on the screen. It says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey, And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Well, chapter 11, I believe, shows how that worked out. Certainly in the mid-60s, in the first century, but it continues to work out now, down through succeeding generations, even to us to this day, is what we like to say 
the way to think about chapter 11 of Revelation. So let's do some preliminary matters before we preach, some definitions and some presumptions. Chapter 11, like most of Revelation, is by and large symbolic. By that it doesn't mean that there aren't real things depicted, but it means that the way they're depicted is not the way they are. Remember, we started off way back when we did this, we showed the, you know, two different statues and we can, there's a picture of something, then there's a symbol of something that stands for real stuff, but it's not the the same thing. Um, Well, here, this temple that's being measured is not the temple in Jerusalem. There was a temple standing in Jerusalem when this was written, I believe. Now, some people think Revelation was written later and so there wouldn't have been a temple there, but I think the temple was there. Uh, But instead, this is, I think, the people of God. We are the temple of God, always are the temple of God. Uh, and here it says, measure them, mark them down, seal them. And all those who are outside, it says, throw them out. Now here, the way our text reads, the way the translation, it said, leave them out. But the Greek word used there <clears throat> is ekbalo, which means to thrust out, to cast out. And uh, so part of what we see here is that <coughs> God is, is uh, saying that I want to mark out those who are really mine, who are in this true temple where my altar is. We saw where the altar is in previous chapters. Uh, But all the rest cast out. They're not going to have a part of this. That's number one. Number two, the numbers used here are representations as well. We know that seven is the number of full completion of perfection. Seven is that. Seven days in a week. Things of that sort. Now, Go ahead and put up the first projection about the numbers. You know, 1,260 divided by 30 is 42 months. Because 1,260, 42, and three and a half are going to be prevalent throughout here and other places as well. So if you take 1,260 divided by 30, if you take those little days, it adds up to 42 months. Now, if you take 42 months, and you divide that by 12 months, you get three and a half years. Thus, 1,260 and 42 and three and a half can be equivalent terms. Do you see? I mean, I think we need to to have that in our little pea brains up here so we know that, well, there's these three different terms. Well, they're all add up to the same amount. Well, it's days, months, or however you want to use it, to, to say what it denominates, but the, the, the values are the same, is how it ends up in days and weeks and months. Now, I would suggest to you that three and a half that's used here and used in lots of other places is, yeah, that's what it, it's, it's half of seven, half of the number of completion or perfection, and so it represents that which is broken, that which is not complete, something that's partial. So whenever you see three and a half, Things that go along with it, that's what it represents, is my understanding. Now, you can, you know, take that and $2 and buy yourself a cup of coffee, you know. <laughs> so, you have to figure out if, where we are at. But I think that's what that three and a half and all those numbers mean. is something that's broken. It's not complete. It's only partial. Now, uh, having said all that, let's move on to the witnesses. Those witnesses, you can take that down now, uh, Clinton. That'd be good. <clears throat> Those two witnesses, everyone wants to know who the two witnesses are, right? I'm going to tell you today who I think they are. They sure look a lot like Moses and Elijah, don't they? 
They look like it. They sound like it. All the things that happen, it looks like Moses and Elijah. Uh, they are for sure the law and the prophets. That's who Moses and Elijah, that's what they stand for, are the law and the prophets. Uh, the crucial matter, though, of these witnesses is the matter that they make and they give a testimony. That's what their goal is. That's what their job is. They're supposed to do that. So that's the main thing we're going to look at there. We think we're like Moses and Elijah. We'll see. And then the fourth thing we need to think about is the beast. This is the first time the beast is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Well, who is the beast? The beast is the anti-God state. It's, you know, is it Caesar or is it Jesus who's Lord? It's the anti-God state. Will always be the beast. Now, I'll have to convince you of that later on. Perhaps in this sermon, we'll see if it does not. But when it says the beast, it means the state, the civil government. And then the fifth thing is this holy city, and that's Jerusalem. It says there, you know, it's, it's where the temple is. It's where the Lord was crucified. Uh, he was there. But it signifies, if you would, the city of man against the city of God. And there I'm using terminology that's made famous by uh, St. Augustine. He wrote a book called The City of God. And so you have this, there's places where the city of God and the city of man overlap. And there where they overlap, that's what's being talked about here. That's what's going to be dealt with in this particular context. And we, I think there's a place, do I have here where, uh, yeah, yes, this, this is where, you know, you say, well, John, you're doing all this stuff about symbolism and stuff like that. What's the basis of that? Well, right here in the text itself, it says, the great city, which mystically, and that is literally, spiritually, is called Sodom and Egypt, which is where the Lord was crucified. So within the text itself, we see some basis to understand things symbolically, representationally, etc. That's why I wanted to, to bring that. Okay, you take that down. Now, with that as a background, let's preach the text. All right? That's the background. That's the presumptions I'm coming from. You may agree with them or you may not. But we're going to take them and we're going to preach the text. And now, what is going on here in chapter 11, in the whole book of Revelation as far as that goes? God has filed a covenant lawsuit against the Jews, against His people. That's what He's doing. Read Psalm 50. He calls heaven and earth to account and says, I'll have, a, I'll have a case with you, my people. Well, here it's happening. Uh, he's doing that. And what's the problem? They have rejected Jesus. They've said, no, He's not the Messiah, He's not the Christ, we don't believe in Him. We will not receive that. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a hard place to take. If God's the one who sent Jesus and Jesus Himself is God, and you say no to Him, something's wrong, right? So that's what all this, 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 this whole little book is about, as a matter of fact. The same sort of lawsuit, by the way, is now going to be brought against the nations. That's what the last verse of chapter 10 said. You have to prophesy many things about many kings and nations, etc. The nations themselves, that's us, we're Gentiles. There may be some Jews here among us, but most of us are Gentile in terms of heritage. Well, God has a lawsuit against us, because if we've rejected Christ, we've rejected Him. He who has the Son has life, he who does not have a Son does not have life. So God has a lawsuit against us. And this lawsuit goes on continuously down through history. God's lawsuit against the nations and against His people. Uh, so that's what's going on. Now, how about these two witnesses? They are, in fact, representative of Moses and Elijah. They're representative of the law and the prophets. They're wearing sackcloth. Did you notice that? Why are they wearing sackcloth? 
This is an important thing to hear in our day and age, by the way, that they're wearing sackcloth. They're the witnesses. Why are they wearing sackcloth? Because their call is to repent. And one calls someone to repentance with sorrow. Because there's a threatened judgment if they don't repent. And you realize the significance of that judgment, the horror of it. We'll see that in a little while. And so they're wearing sackcloth to show the seriousness of what they have to talk about. Well, why Moses and why Elijah? Because the law of God. That's what Moses gave. Moses is the great lawgiver. Did you know there's a picture of Moses down in our Supreme Court of the United States? Moses, the supreme lawgiver. Well, we need to take the law of God and apply it here and now. People down through the ages have rebelled against the law of God. We want to make our own laws. We want to make our own rules. Here's what we'll do. God may have said that, but here's what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. You've done that, and I've done that. That's called rebellion against the Most High, and that's not a good place to be. Today, we, like God's people down through history, have to stand athwart of history, raise our hands and say, stop, no, what you teach, what you believe, what you legislate is false, when it is false, when it goes contrary to God's law. And we have a whole... (laughs) abundance of laws in our land here and other lands as well that are directly in rebellion against God. And someone has to be a witness about that. That's what these witnesses are. That's why they wear sackcloth. You know, it's sad, it's sad that bright, brilliant, elite people believe that you can have male chromosomes, DNA, and be a woman. That is high rebellion against God. Now, you could take this, and I suppose I could be prosecuted today for even saying that. But someone has, these witnesses, the witnesses have to say that when God's law, that's why Moses said, why God's law is being (coughs) violated. And this has been going on for decades. So that's why it's Moses. But what about Elijah? It's because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Well, that's awfully exclusive, isn't it? That's awful discriminatory, isn't it? I can remember arguing that forcefully with my cousin, who was a Christian, and I wasn't back when I was 22, 23 years old. Man, I don't, Don, do you really mean that no one who hasn't received Christ, doesn't believe in him, that they're lost? And you can see in his eyes, he said, he ached to say this. He said, yes, that's what the scripture says. We must say that. I want to show you how the the world responds when you say that. We got the newsletter from Kevin and Maria Noyes, Noyes this past week. And there was a story in it. And uh, it was about 
well, it was a story, it was a, a testimony from a, a girl who's part of their, their group at, uh, <clears throat> a student at Gettysburg College. And she had an interaction with some students there in one of her classes. And here's what she said about this guy named Philip. Philip is very smart and logical and called me uneducated. As I believe there is an absolute truth that comes from God through his word. That's a good testimony. All right, she's been a good witness. That, that's good. She, she believed that. She talked to him about that. They're in the class where they were at Gettysburg College. Goes on, he says this. He said, I was pretty much unworthy to be a Gettysburg College student because Christianity is demonic. She says, yes, he used that word. Christianity is demonic. To tell people that they were going to do, to tell people what they were doing was wrong or sinful is demonic. Or that they need to be saved from themselves is demonic. You know, that's the very essence of what the worldview predominantly across our nation today says. So that young man, Philip, was saying exactly what you'll hear if you come out and present the gospel clearly and show who Jesus is, that he's the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. It, it's harmful, it's hurtful. And then she went on to write this. I expressed that we, that as Christians, never intend to give the bad news without the good news. And that Christ died and resurrected to save them and me. Now, I put this in italics because she says, Philip said in his own words that he needed to be lost first to be saved. <laughs> I agreed with him, but he did not think he was lost. That's the big problem. And that's where the, the witnesses come in. That's where the testimony is. No one thinks they're lost. No one thinks they need a savior. We're okay. And we want somehow to share with people in a winsome way that doesn't tell them that they're lost. That doesn't tell them that they're, they're headed for hell. If something doesn't change. And you can't. Eventually it has to sink in. That's why you wear sackcloth. It's a sad thing. All right, you can take that down now, Clinton. That's good. Thank you. But I thought that that was a wonderful example of someone being a witness, sharing a testimony, and the reaction that comes back. Just take, I, I read it, we got it in the mail this week. <clears throat> now, the testimony of Jesus is a crucial term. And uh, it occurs five times in the book of Revelation. So put the first two up here, Clinton. It says, uh, the reason John is there, he says, he testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The next one. I, John, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the, the testimony of Jesus. Okay. Uh, what's the next one in chapter 12? So the dragon made war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In chapter 20, it says this, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. Now here, this last one is the key from Revelation 19.10. I am a fellow, John sees an angel and he's going to bow down and worship him and he thinks it's God. He says, the angel says, I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. 
<coughs> Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, all of those prophets for which Elijah stands as the head, at the head of that school, that class, all the prophets, all of what they had to say was to point to and show that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that apart from Him, no one can get to heaven. Is that fair? So, the witnesses look like Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah were with Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but we understand that the spirit of prophecy always points to Jesus, of which Elijah is the type. Now let's talk about the transfiguration that exemplifies and clarifies things. So put up the, the scre- screenshot that we have this uh, from <clears throat> Luke chapter 9, where we just read. You have that one in there? Yeah. Uh, it says this, that uh, two men were speaking with Jesus, or with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. They were. They actually was. Who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, literally exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, when it says his exodus, that means he's leaving this world. They're talking about his ascension, but also think of what Moses did when he did the exodus. He led people out. He didn't go alone. Jesus is not going to heaven, as it were, alone. He calls us and leads us out. Those who hear Him, those who repent and come to Him, He leads us out. And we're now, we'll read this in a minute, see that at the right hand of the Father as well in terms of spirit. That's what Ephesians 1 was about. So, that confirmed to Jesus who He was and what He did, and He was going to go on forward from there. Now, you can take that down. The power of this testimony, this witnesses. Did you hear what it said in here? I thought this was powerful. It says, uh, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Woo! I've been fervent for God, but I've never had fire fall out of my, fall out of my mouth and devour the person I was hollering at. My kids can tell you they thought it did. One time, one time Jake said, you know, where, when I was hollering at John Henry, you know, where that was, that, that place was, the floor was warm there. <laughs> But I've never, 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 never had fire flow out of my mouth, though I've been fervent. So, this is symbolic, right? You agree with me? I hope you do. I don't think anyone's having fire flow. Put the, put the text up from Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 5, uh, verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word... Behold, I am making the words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it will consume them. That's what it means. A witness bears testimony, right? And the very words that you speak out will, in fact, if you're speaking truth, will judge people. That's why we wear sackcloth as well. It's a hard thing. When we get to the end here in just a little bit, we'll see that there will be some people who reject that. And, And the They'll be judged by the testimony they heard and rejected and refused. And it won't be pleasant. Here's how Leon Morris in his book on Revelation speaks about the testimony these witnesses bear. He says, the faithful performance of the church's duty, that is to bear witness, to bear testimony, is itself one of the ways in which the judgments of God are set in motion against an evil world. That is, we bear testimony to the law of God, 
The prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ is being the only way we bear testimony to that. And those, are, those words themselves may well be, as it says here, fire flowing from our mouths will be the testimony that initiates, for those who reject it, the judgments of God. I'm over time already, but I've got a little ways to go. I'm going to leave out this section on the, the uh, coronavirus, all right? We'll let that go. We're not supposed to bring that up anyway, are we? Let's put up the, the text from Luke 13, 4 anyway. I won't talk a whole bunch about it, but here's what I want to say. Jesus is speaking. He says, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Folks, the coronavirus is not a sign of the end of the world. It's not a sign of Christ's return. But it is a sign that we're mortal. It is a sign that you're going to die. And you need to take a, acknowledge that fact and deal with that fact regularly. Because we don't know the day of our death. We simply do not know. So the coronavirus is indeed a sign from God. It couldn't happen if God didn't permit, God, God didn't do that. But it's a sign for us to remember you're mortal. When will your day come? We don't know. Uh, so those two witnesses, they finish their testimony and then they're killed. <clears throat> Note that it does not happen. They're not killed until the testimony is finished. Uh, the beast does it. It's the one who kills them, the state. Now let's do, look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. We need to make some distinctions here for all of us who are, you guys who are interested in prophecy. It says this, and the devil who deceived them, that is the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there we see three personages, because sometimes in our minds we get those three all mixed up. They think they're the same, same, same sort of evil person. There's three specific persons mentioned, the devil, the beast, the false prophet. And <clears throat> the beast, like I said, is the government uh, that's anti-God. Nicolas Maduro down in Venezuela is a beast. The, the guy who's the, the president or premier of, of China is a beast. I mean, look what they're doing to the churches there. It's a beast. They're killing people. Uh, the, 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 the rebels there, the rebels, but the, the Boko Haram in Nigeria, Niger, and Chad, and that area, they're the beast. So that's what they are. How about the false prophet? Those are Christian, if you would, deceivers. Think of Harry Emerson Fosdick. Back in a, a hundred years ago, he was preaching at Riverside Church in New York, and he said, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the bones of Jesus of Nazareth can lie rotting over in, the, in a cave in Palestine, and it doesn't affect my faith. He didn't believe in the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Christ. That was, that's the rise of modernism. So that can't happen. That's true. It cannot happen unless God does it. God can do whatever He wants. And God raised Him from the dead. It's the same person who <clears throat> we might think of today as Rob Bell, very popular pastor for a while, but then he kept going, 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 and he got off into where he's He's simply the voice of the Antichrist, the voice of the false prophet, if you would. Uh, I think of Brian McLaren down here in Maryland, uh, who's gone way off again, starts off good, looks like he's there, like he's from us, but he goes off, and it turns out he's the false prophet as well. 
I think of some of the professors I had in seminary. They were false prophets. They were like that. So where's the Antichrist in all this? The Antichrist is only mentioned four times in Scripture. We're going to show where all four of those are. They're all in John's epistles. Here's the first one from 1 John 2, 18. It says, you heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, John wrote, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. Do you know that? Already back in his day, many Antichrists had appeared. He goes on in chapter 2 and says this, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who, deni- who denies the Father and the Son. That's the Antichrist, he says. Just, I mean, it's there. So these people who say that, well, Jesus is not really the Christ, really not Messiah, really not the Son of God, that's the Antichrist spirit that speaks. In 1 John 4, we read this. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. So these false prophets I just mentioned, they're the Antichrist in that sense. There's one last portion in 2 John 7. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Okay, you can take that all down. Those are the only places in the whole Bible where you find the word Antichrist, just so you're aware. So you need to know what it's about, because there are all kind of false impressions made up of what all is going to happen. <clears throat> the world delights in killing the witnesses. I told you before, when I went to college at Purdue as a freshman year, we had a great time. We had Charlie Stokes. I was in D unit in Kerry Quadrangle. We had a good Christian boy there named Charlie Stokes. In our goal all semester was to get him drunk so that his testimony would be polluted. We succeeded to my shame and degradation. The world is always looking to kill the witnesses. They're looking to kill you and your witness, whether that be physically or whether that be through some compromise, some some shaming, some stuff that, that shuts you up. There's no burial for them. There's no respect. There's no honor given. No, they're the flotsam of the earth. Throw them away. Instead, they're celebrations. Why? Because the testimony of the witnesses tormented the others. Charlie Stokes' testimony about an upright life tormented us. We were glad when he fell. We were glad. That's what this is talking about. But guess what? The witnesses rise again after three and a half days. It's just a shortened time. It's just a partial time. Events conspire to vindicate what they said. And their enemies hear the voice say, come up here. I made fun and ridiculed all kinds of Christians in my early life before I was converted. And then all of a sudden, God began to work, and there was an earthquake in my life. Earthquakes always speak of judgment, right? There's earthquakes in my life. And all of a sudden, I realized 
I'm lost. Just what the fellow out at Gettysburg College, need, Philip needs to find out, he's lost. Ah, oh, the terror that was there. Where can I go? I'm at, I don't believe in hell. I'm going to hell. Oh, my goodness. And their witness tormented me, but gave me hope as well, because I saw they really did believe. They really had experienced something, something that happened to them that, that I need desperately to have happen to me, and I can't make it happen. But God in His mercy reaches down and saves me, makes me new, takes away my sins, clothes me with the righteousness of Christ, and I have salvation. So that earthquake that it talks about there says 7,000 people were killed. That is, all those folks, all those folks who reject this, keep on rejecting, they're killed, all of them. But there were those who did what? Were terrified. They had the fear of God. The fear of God's a right and good thing in the right way. They were terrified. And what did they do? They gave glory to the God of heaven. You all know what glory is, right? It's the true character of something. And they gave glory to God. They, they says, we know who you are. I knew who God was. God, you're, you're the ruler of all. I'm lost. You can, you can be my savior. I call on you. Help me. And he did. Hallelujah. Right? And so they, they glorified the God of heaven. <clears throat> the rest, not part of that, that 7,000, not 7,000, that 7,000 is all those who go on and persistently reject Christ. Now, we might as well stay till one o'clock. Right. <laughs> oh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop. I left out some things, but I'm going to conclude. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Paul prays for Christians that, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, and all these different things. He prays there. Because Christ has been raised up. And I'd like to put one last verse up here. Here's what it says. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He, Christ, God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him. Come up here. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, Witness to what? Witness to the truth of God, to the law of God, and to the spirit and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one <clears throat> comes to the Father but through Him. May you and may I be witnesses to that. Amen.